Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. This week, we'll be looking at Premier Wen Jiabao's eulogy for Hu Yaobang, whose death on April 15, 1989, famously touched off the student demonstrations of that year. We'll also be looking at the impact of last week's earthquake in Qinghai province. Our guests this week are Tanya Brannigan, reporter for The Guardian, who's just back from the quake-devastated areas of Qinghai. Hi, Tanya. Hi. Uh, we've also got Gotti Epstein, Beijing bureau chief for Forbes. How are you, Gotti? Good, thanks, Kaiser. And uh, Jeremiah Jenny, dean of Chinese studies at the IES Center in Beijing. Hi there, Kaiser. Let's jump right in with the uh, first topic on Wen Jiabao and Hu Yaobang. Last week, Wen Jiabao published a pian to the uh, reform-minded general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party in the Renmin Rival, the People's Daily. It was a highly emotional essay. Uh, published on the 21st anniversary of Hu's death. First off, let's get a bit of, of historical background. Who was Hu Yaobang? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, Kaiser, Hu Yaobang was one of, of several protégés under Deng Xiaoping that was instrumental in leading the reforms of the late 1970s and 1980s. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth at that time between conservatives and reformers. As, as a result, one of the things that happens, of course, is that there are a series of student movements, not just obviously the most famous one in 1989, but also in the mid-'80s. And because of this, uh, conservatives in the, in the government really kind of were looking for a scapegoat, and Hui Yaobang was thrown over the side. The student demonstrations in Shanghai mainly in 86. That's right, in Shanghai mainly. And, and these were the ones that centered around um, the Chinese astrophysicist Fang Lijie. Yeah. So Hui Yaobang was removed from power in 1987, uh, his post was given to Zhao Ziyang. And then two years later, when, when Hu Yaobang dies on April 15, 1989, it's a memorial for Hu Yaobang. Um, Who had still kept his Politburo seat. He was still a member of the Politburo standing committee. He was a member of the Politburo. In fact, I think he died at a Politburo meeting of a heart attack uh, that April. And there was some thought that when he died, the state remembrance for him wasn't really as deep or as moving as people had wished. And so students from the universities and other people at Beijing came out to express their sympathy at the loss of Hu Yaobang. And this had echoes, of course, in the past. I mean, the famously in 1976, when Zhou Enlai passed away, uh, people came out to Tiananmen Square on uh, the Qingming Festival of that year to remember Zhou Enlai. And, you know, this, this idea that, you know, wow, this reform-minded official has died, this great guy has died, the really great guy has died, which you know, is, you know, a slight, of course, against the, the guy who didn't die. Exactly. They're like, why didn't the other one die? So this was, uh, Hu Yaobang became kind of a very sensitive issue. Not quite as sensitive as the person who replaced him, Zhao Ziyang, who was uh, last seen speaking to the students in the square and then lost his positions as a result of that, but still remembers. Interestingly, with Wen Jiabao standing right behind him. Right? Yeah, that was our call. I think it was Wen Jiabao's job to go mind him in the square. Okay. Um, but Wen Jiabao 
um, was there in the square with right. Zhao Ziyang, and it led some people to think later on that Wen Jiabao was a protege of Zhao Ziyang, but what we really know is that he was far closer to Hu Yaobang. And Hu Yaobang, unlike Zhao Ziyang, has been gradually rehabilitated um, in the past few years. In 05, yeah, he was actually eulogized in 05 by the other leader, Chinese President Hu Jintao. Gadi, um, what was the gist of, of what Wen Jiabao actually wrote in Enemy Jibao? Well, basically, he recalls a trip he took to Guizhou in 1986 with Hu Yaobang, uh, using the occasion of a recent visit to Guizhou to then reminisce about um, his great friend Hu Yaobang, this person he worked for and admired. And he kind of goes on about his qualities of uh, how you should listen to, you know, the top leaders have to listen to, you know, the common man. Uh, you have to go and seek and find uh, what's really going on in the villages and the countryside and with, and with the nation's poor. And sort of this sort of populist rhetoric that Wen Jiabao is well known for. Yeah, I mean, and, it's, it's, he's sort of describing himself. And, and he, of, he is basically describing himself and that he essentially took these lessons from, from Comrade Yaobang. And he basically closes with a remembrance of Hu Yaobang 21 years after his death, full of, you know, all sorts of fulsome praise for him. It was uh, 21 years after his death, which compassion. is interesting. And why it wasn't at, at, at the 20th anniversary, uh, does anyone <laughs> care to speculate as to why that might have? Right. This is, of course, why people are wondering, why did this come out now? What does it mean? And my personal take is that it really doesn't mean a lot, because I think this would have happened last year if it hadn't been for the fact that last year, of course, was... A nice round anniversary uh, day. Too. ...was the 20th anniversary, not just of Hu Yanbang's death, but, of course, of the student demonstrations of June 4th. And it was basically, they were very nervous last year about all sorts of anniversaries, not sure. just June 4th. Tani, what do you make of this? What do you think that this means uh, in the larger scheme of Chinese politics, of elite politics in China? I think that's what everybody would love to know. I mean, it's it's a striking piece, but as Jeremiah says, it's not an unprecedented piece. He's, he's being, in a sense, sort of rehabilitated. He's never been a, a particularly controversial figure in the way that Jia Ziyang is, obviously. Right. Um, so he's safer in that sense. It's It's a striking piece, and you wonder if... It's just reinforcing that message, you know, I speak for the ordinary people, I speak to the ordinary people, uh, we're looking out for you, uh, we, you know, we're aware of the pressures on you. There's, um, there are other people who, who suggest that it telegraphs another message, though, that it has to do with factional politics in China. Hui Albang was the, the head of the Chinese Communist Youth League uh, for 20 years, in fact. He was the first, first secretary of, of the CYL. And, of course, both Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao are, are considered part of this, this so-called CYL faction. There's, there's, there's been quite a bit made of this whole business of, of factions in, in China. And opinion seems to have congealed, opinion among informed China watchers seems to have congealed around this notion that I first saw put forth by a Brookings Institute scholar by the name of Li Cheng, uh, Cheng, Cheng Li. I, Gotti and I were actually talking about this. What the hell is his first name and what's his last name? I believe his surname is Li. Yeah, we'll anyway, um, he's the guy who scooped my dissertation topic back when I was a, a graduate student and wrote the first serious work on the emergence of technocrats in post-Mao China, uh, really right. well establishing very well the extent to which the modern Chinese leadership is entirely technocratic, I mean, down to, to very low levels. Uh, that's, it's been that way since the mid-'80s. Now, his, his latest take on how the factions sort of play out, he divides it between, on the one hand, a princeling faction, uh, people who are the scions of the revolutionary elders, who tend to favor foreign direct investment, favor the coastal economy, allow a, a higher Gini coefficient. The so-called elitists. The so-called elitists, exactly. Right. And 
poses against them a communist youth league or populist faction, uh, which would include people like Hu Jintao and, and, and Wen Jiabao. And these people are more interested in uh, preventing income inequality from rising too high, in leveling out conditions between the coasts and the coast and, and the hinterland, and uh, generally are, seem to be more concerned with problems of, of agrarian life, you know, the San Nong problem and so forth. To what extent do you think this, this is accurate? Do you think that this is a, a good heuristic? And is it stark? Right. I, I definitely don't think it's that, that stark. Um, going back quickly to Wen's pan, I don't, sure. I don't think this plays too much into factional politics. I, I think in his, in his particular case, I think this is essentially payback to those who would have been upset, offended a year ago that he didn't get his proper remembrance on his 20th anniversary when others did. Um, and to that extent, maybe it, it, it does appease a faction. I think there are multiple interest groups. And in fact, I think Tanya and I were just talking with someone who is within the government recently um, about this, sort of poo-poos this Western desire to divide the Chinese leadership into stark factions. Right. I, I would definitely agree right. with you. That, so it's not useful at all? Do you think that there's... No, it is useful. I mean, there's clearly a Twin Pai. There's a Communist Youth League yeah, uh, faction, um, and they're, they are appointing their own to high positions. And there's clearly... A Tai Zedong faction. And the Tai Zedong yeah. faction. Um, but within those groups, I'm sure there's much animosity, you know, many animosities, and there's different interests that can prevail over, you know, subsections. And uh, I think these, there can be shifting, uh, shifting interests. Uh, I think we have multiple uh, factions, not just two, the populists versus the elitists. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think it doesn't divide starkly at all. Right. And I think, too, sometimes we miss the point when we look at the very top echelons. Like one of the things that we find, you know, not only in China today, but something that does have certainly a historical tradition is factionalism within the bureaucracy, um, acting as a check on certain powers within the government. I think sometimes in the West we're very conscious of looking at political leaders and looking at differing groups of political leaders and how those play out. But in fact, in China, it seems that much of the competition for power, for resources, and for ideas takes place at the sub-cabinet or at the bureaucratic level between different ministries. We saw a little bit of this recently with um, the Internet um, Surveillance Bureau or the Internet Surveillance Policies being better articulated, but that still seemed to involve a large number of different ministries kind of hashing out who was in charge of what. And I wonder if that's maybe where a lot of this takes sure. place. Sure. I mean, I, working in the Internet industry, I mean, we're constantly seeing uh, these jurisdictional fights between MIIT, for example, and SARFT or between, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite common. I think that's at a, a much more granular level. But, you know, understanding the upper echelons of, of, of power here, these are still sort of useful models to some extent. Uh, I mean, we should make clear, I mean, all of us are indulging in this Zhongnan hyology. If you'll, we, we tend to, to, to try to read tea leaves in every little event that happens, like uh, who's lined up where, uh, when the camera lingered for a little while longer on Xi Jinping during the, the Olympic opening ceremony, everyone sort of, ah, you know. Right. And, yeah, this reminds me of the, the criminologists back in the day. Well, uh, actually, once again, Ty and I were both just going over this uh, CIA paper from 1975 talking about sort of the follies of China watching, which they refused to call Sinology because they said it just hasn't risen to that level. And one of the sections was called, Does Logic Help?, uh, I think <laughs> and it was, does it? <laughs> right. It was quite a sobering kind of reminder that for decades we've we've been calling things wrong. And there were quite, uh, you know, erudite experts on elite Chinese politics who got the 16th Party Congress wrong, who got the 17th Party Congress wrong. And well, who, sure. And yeah. we'll I mean, get the 18th. We'll get the 18th wrong. Right. Uh, I mean, the 18th, right. I think it was really very interesting uh, the other day. Somebody 
had bought a Time magazine and was looking apparently at Josh Cooper Ramos's article in Time. They bought it at the Beijing airport. Right. And old school redaction. Somebody had taken a black marker and, and, and marked out a little passage, which was a descriptor after Xi Jinping's name, which I think read something like uh, the widely, presumed front runner. Yeah, widely, widely expected to be the next front, president yeah, in think, 20, or 2012. Front, or, right. And they had uh, taken that straight out. What do we, what do we make of that? I mean, well, is, I mean, is he not <laughs> expected to be? Is Bozzi Lai on the rise again? Uh, we are, you talk about reading tea leaves, and the point is you can always read them, but you can read them in so many different ways. I was talking to political expert um, about the fact that somebody had been rather more high profile than usual and I said does this mean he's sort of on the up again they said he said well it could be or it could be that somebody feels he needs a bit of a boost because he's not doing as well as he should be right I saw a lot of really strange speculation well some of it maybe you know I don't know how strange it is Victor Schur who I think uh, God you, you're, you're I know, I, know him well, I read yeah. him I mean he, I, a guy I really respect his take on, on Wen Jiabao's eulogy uh, to Hu Yaobang was that Wen is in trouble Right. Well, there has also been a longstanding theory for years that Wen is in trouble. Right. Uh, he's still there. Uh, there was even some sort of interpretation of his comments at uh, uh, in his last press conference after the NPC, right? I think, Tanya, you, you were noting this before, uh, that uh, you know he was talking about, um, I plan to do this in the remainder of my term, the full remainder of my right. time, <laughs> as if there was some sort of implication that there was any question. Uh, that he might not serve out the remainder. I, I don't put much stock in that, but I also think that, you know, this is a clear case where William Goldman's rule about Hollywood applies. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> I think, too, I mean, this was, you know, the front page of the, the People's Daily. It wasn't like he had posted a large poster somewhere in Tiananmen Square. This piece here uh, had been passed around Zhongnanhai more times than Sun Ying after a keg party. <laughs> I right. mean, everybody knew this was oh coming gosh. out. This wasn't going to be some kind of secret missive. And that's that, that to me, kind of takes away from the whole, yeah. you know, this is when saving himself or when shooting some kind of factional warning over the bow, that kind of thing. I agree. Um, on, on the Seneca podcast, we, we like to try to explain obscure references to the readers who might not understand them. Jeremiah, would you like to explain who Sun Ying is? I would, but Mrs. Jung Zemin has me on her speed dial. <laughs> and I'm afraid that that would be a very awkward conversation. I understand, I understand. But, well, we will make you explain one thing. Uh, I've made reference earlier to the Communist Youth League, to the Gongqing Clan. Can you explain what that is, what the purpose of the Gongqing Clan is, uh, what is it? Is it just a bunch of kids in, in red uh, neckerchiefs? Okay, well, I mean, the Communist Youth League, I mean, isn't just simply the Boy Scouts for the Communist Party. It is a major organization within the party hierarchy designed to select, train, and to um, bolster the careers of promising Communist Party cadres. And it's been that way for you know, most of the, the, the PRC period. Being the head of the Communist Youth League, as Hu Yaobang was, and as Hu Jintao was, was, right? was, 85, I believe. Uh, he was One of the things this does yeah, is it gives you quite a network of people who are personally loyal to you as somebody who was there for your training. And, and this gives you people who you can draw on the sport in the lower bureaucracy. So when you want to get things done, you can call people who know you as, you know, the former teacher, or the former head of this organization. And that really greases... Uh, greases the wheels. And I think this is an important point going back to the idea of, you know, are, they, are we talking about factions? Are we talking about interest groups? That actually people in power anywhere like to have people they trust. Yeah. And we see that in any administration. Absolutely. They bring in, in any people. Country, right. 
Absolutely. So are you talking about people who necessarily have identical beliefs? Um, not necessarily, but they have a sense that they can rely on certain people to work with them to get things done. And uh, the currently, you know, Li Keqiang, who's supposedly, if, if this would be redacted if this were in an article, but uh, is widely, we'll, we'll take care of that you know, you. is widely <laughs> presumed front runner for premier to be in Wen Jiabao's seat. He's a former uh, first secretary of the Communist Youth League as well. And then this, Tanya's point also points to other potential factions that are also based on personal relationships, like uh, regional factions, you know, Shanghai. The Shanghai clique. Right, yes. the Guangdong. Shanghai clique and the princelings happen to overlap quite a bit they do. in this case, but... It strikes me, actually, and maybe, Tanya, you can speak to this, uh, that Wen Jiabao is a guy who cares very much about his popular image. He's cultivated it more than any leader that I can remember in recent memory, that avuncular or possibly even grandfatherly image. Um, he, he's very open emotionally. He will cry publicly and, and get quite worked up emotionally. Uh, this plays very well. He's in a long line of premiers who are, are quite well loved. Zhu Rongji for his sort of acerbic wit and for his earthiness and Zhou Enlai, of course. Uh, is he playing to history here? Well, I think one of the things you have to wonder is, is it about him or is it about the government and about the fact that generally, you know, you need people playing different roles almost. And again, I mean, that's not something that's unique to China, um, that you have somebody who is running things in a more uh, clinical or more sort of technocratic way, you could argue, and you have somebody who's sort of the man of the people who can relate to them. And the fact that, as you say, there's a kind of historical precedent there, you know, there is this sense before that people have had a figure that they can relate to in a more intimate or a more comfortable way. I mean, that, that's something that's been there for a while. So is that just about him or is that actually about something that works very well for, for the government as a whole? That's a very, very question. I don't I mean, think we we, we also see kind of a, a long tradition of the number twos being the men of the people. I mean, Kaiser mentioned Zhou Enlai. That's, that's a very good example. Exactly. But also, even during the 1980s with Zhao Ziyun, mm -hmm. you know, who was seen as kind of the man of the people, the person who kind of cared the most about people's, you know, getting enough to eat and, and people's lives in the, in the rural area. Wen Jiabao fits into that tradition rather nicely. And I think being number two also allows you to do things like go to the earthquake zone and cry publicly, offer apologies, as we saw in the case of the last two years ago in Sichuan, mm -hmm. that things that Hu Jintao just would not be able to do for, for, for fairly obvious reasons. Right, right, right. Before we move on to the next topic, I wanted to talk a little bit about this, this idea of technocracy in China. I'm often asked if I had to explain what the party leadership is all about, and I've often used the word technocratic as a first descriptor. Is that changing? Do you see, as you gaze into the crystal ball and look at the 18th Party Congress and, and the Politburo Standing Committee that may emerge out of that, do you see the composition changing? I, I think what you're getting at, to, to me, is that the we're talking about an institution that has its own set of values. It's not just that it's a, whether it's a technocracy, but it's, it's, a, it's an institution that where they want to preserve power and preserve their prerogatives. So the people who are lower down will find ways to rise up by emulating their models. And so I think that's why it has evolved as a party of, of engineers up until now. And basically they follow like proven pathways. And now the, you know, that's Communist Youth League again. Uh, Princeling are... Uh, and Tsinghua Engineering. Right, yeah. are, uh, are several of those pathways. And in, th in this sense, I think that you're talking about not too wide a spectrum of uh, values um, that the people who kind of get up to the top have is essentially it's like norm they have their own kind of normative set of values that everybody sort of adheres to. 
One of the things I'd say too, if you look at issues of governance, for example, who is doing the governing? I mean, one way to look at it, and this is something I tell my students quite a bit, is if you take a look at China, you can take a look and it's a, a system run by engineers. You know, in the U.S., it's a system run by lawyers, and that's a very different system of governance. Absolutely. And I think, and I think you know, I, I was I was reading a um, the transcript of a Harvard roundtable that was done, I think, a couple of months ago. Um, Evan Osnos was in there, and uh, Mark Elliott as well. And one that was the, an excellent read. I'll remind me. I'll, I'll put a link to that on the uh, podcast page. Sure, that'd be great. And one of the one of the speakers, and I, I fortunately I can't remember exactly who, uh, who at this point, um, did say, you know, China delivers on governance. People deliver. They deliver services to the people. And he he that he or she postulated that part of this is because when you have a bureaucracy of engineers, engineers get things done. Lawyers argue about stuff. And that you want to compare, you know, disaster response in the U.S. and disaster response in China. I mean, that's one thing to look at. There's a downside to technocracy. I'm sure Gotti. Well, what I was going to build off of that is I think it's an ideology of of pragmatism, and that can have both its uh, upsides, which is delivering services to the people, and its downsides, which is uh, it's quite pragmatic to have a very tough security apparatus. And so I think in in this case, they have, like we just saw with the earthquake, I thought there was a great quote from Robbie Barnett about how uh, China can be both generous, very generous and very cruel, I believe was the other I one. I don't think he was cruel. Uh, or very, very expectant of gratitude, I think, was the point no, he was making. I think a marriage counselor would call it passive-aggressive. <laughs> well, he was, he was saying that there were two extremes. It was very, very generous on the one hand um, and uh, quite tough on the other. And uh, they need both. The institution uh, sort of requires both. The carry on the stick, yeah. And that, that is, to me, that's less technocracy than... A manifestation of pragmatism. Right. The problem with technocracy is it imagines there is the correct solution. That's right. And in fact, very often in life, there, in almost all of politics, there are a choice of solutions which have different benefits and costs. Um, how are you measuring the effectiveness of what they're doing? With something like disaster relief, that's fairly straightforward. But with something like educational health, it very often isn't. Or with, for instance, uh, Xinjiang and trying to improve the situation there, which I, you know, you're, you know this party leadership wants to do things that improve uh, the situation on the ground in Xinjiang so that it's more stable. And but they'll approach it like an engineering problem. Qian uh, Xuesheng, who is the father of the Chinese rocketry program, he was a great advocate of technocracy. Uh, I mean, he had made no bones about it. And he said that government departments should be run like engineering departments of, of, of companies. And he believed very much in breaking down problems into their discrete components and just attacking them that way. You see this all the time. I mean, in, in the gigantic, say, the South-North Water Divergence Project, I mean, just colossal hydrological projects that, that no other government in the world would think of tackling. Right. Anyway, I, I think we, we really do need to move on here. Early on the morning of Wednesday, April 14th, a magnitude 7.1 earthquake leveled about 90% of the buildings in Yushu County in southern Qinghai province. So far, more than 2,000 are now reported dead, and practically the entire population of the affected areas is living in tents and uh, in other temporary housing. Qinghai, and particularly this area of Qinghai, is heavily Tibetan, and this dimension of the quake, as well as Beijing's handling of the rescue, the relief, the rebuilding efforts, have um, become quite naturally part of the focus on, on the story. Andrew Jacobs from the New York Times had a piece that leads with a scene of Tibetan monks coming on a buried body in the rubble, and then these Tibetan monks are being shooed off by Chinese, presumably Han Chinese soldiers who were kind of lounging around taking a break nearby. 
and the upshot of the story, or anyway, what any casual reader of the story was going to take away from this, is that the Tibetan monks really want to save lives, and the party is just there for propaganda purposes. The next day, of course, he had a story, I think, which was, uh, had a very different takeaway, which was that party policies in this particular area, at least, have been pretty hands-off. They've allowed relatively wide berth to the Buddhist clergy, and that in the aftermath of the quake, the party has been, you know, showing its generous side, you know, to, to quote Robbie Barnett again. Uh, what should we make of this, the ethnic dimensions to this thing? Do you think it's been overplayed in, in the Western press? Tanya, you were just there. Well, I think one thing about Andrew Jacobs' story is he was fairly actually careful to caveat, you know, this is one incident. Sure, yeah. That's, and that's, one that's thing fair, that's absolutely. important to remember is that when we go anywhere, we have a pretty limited time in which to go and talk to people, and there's always a sort of random element in that sense in, in what we come away with. I think there were certainly some tensions there about who was contributing the most to relief. Um, but, I mean, t two things I would say there. Firstly, in any disaster zone, actually, you get these kinds of tensions or this sense that perhaps some people aren't getting sufficient credit for the work they do, and that's kind of a universal. Um, I think the other thing is that was actually quite interesting was that monks were doing a lot of the relief work, but they were actually working quite well with the local government in some in some ways. Uh, one of the monasteries there who'd had a very, very organised relief effort uh, was saying, well, we couldn't have done this without the local government. You know, they've given us this place to set yeah, up. Yeah, this is from your story, uh, mm. one, one of your, your files from there. And it was quite striking, actually, that they were working reasonably well together. And I think this is where Robbie Barnett's point is very interesting, that this is somewhere where there's actually a history of reasonably good relations between local officials and the monks and... Tibetans more widely, uh, you've got a history of NGO, Tibetan NGOs operating there. Which they've given wide birth to as well, mm, as and, I understand it. And mm. so there's a sense they can work together. And one of the interesting points that um, Robert Barnett made to me was, you know, you had tensions over what work the monks were doing, whether they were allowed to do rescue work at particular sites. But then actually the authorities asked a lama to step in and mediate, which he managed to do successfully. So is that an example of tensions or is that an example of actually quite a successful relationship? You could argue it's both. I think somebody should, needs to ID Robbie Barnett very quickly. Uh, he's the head of Buddhist studies at Columbia University. Is that correct? Uh, Tibetan, Tibetan studies, studies possibly? Tibetologist. Last week, Austin Ramsey from Time was on the show, and one of the comments that he made as we were talking about the mine disaster in Wangjialing in Shanxi province was that the, uh, how the government delivers on disaster relief is a really important part of political legitimacy. It strikes me, Jeremiah, that this isn't something that's particularly uh, new or, or per particular to the current administration. This idea of uh, the, the meaning of disaster and uh, a government's response to it is, is quite old. Again, put your historian's hat on and tell us about the Mandate of Heaven. Well, yeah, I mean, the Mandate of Heaven is something that gets trotted out almost every time we have a disaster in China, and I think perhaps a little bit too much. Uh, even when you look at it historically, and you know, three of the five deadliest earthquakes on record have occurred in China, including the deadliest one, which was in 1556 in Shanxi, where about 800 to 900,000 people were killed. Jesus. Uh, you know... Being able to deliver disaster relief has been part of this. And, and we can talk about mandate of heaven and, and how, you know, this, the, the portents of a change in dynasty occur because of natural disasters. But in fact, a larger part of it has to do with governance, the ability to know when a disaster is happening, to effectively direct resources to a disaster area and alleviate suffering. And this goes, you know, all the way back. Um, you know, one of the first seismometers ever created in the world was created in China by a court astronomer named Zhang Hong um, around 130 AD, 
in in one of the this invention, which was which if you look at it, looks kind of like a coffee pot. It's a bronze urn with eight dragons around in the the, the cardinal direction. Dragons, yeah. of course it does. And then underneath, there's a, there's bronze toads with their mouths open, kind of looking like they're really in love with the dragons. And the idea was this this urn, which had a swinging pendulum inside. Um, if tremors came from a particular direction, a ball would drop out of the dragon into, into the, the toad, mouth of the into right the mouth toad, of the right. toad, indicating direction from which the tremor had or the the disturbance had come. And most people who saw this laughed at it at first, until in fact his seismometer went off, indicating an earthquake. I think it was to the north or northwest. And sure enough, two days later, riders came out saying, you know, there'd been a big earthquake, send help. And this now this allowed the Han Han Dynasty or the Han Court to send relief to there before the riders came back to the, the, the capital and it helped them to, you know, in, in relieving um, situations of disaster. This is the kind of thing that even in the, the early 20th century, um, there was a devastating earthquake in Gansu in 1920. Again, several hundred thousands of people died. And of course, that was a time when the government had absolutely no ability to right. respond. There was almost no government. I mean, China was height Afgan- of the warlord period. Yeah. China was Afghanistan on steroids. So this is a this is something governments pay, the government pays a lot of attention to. And of course, the the one people talk about um, is Tangshan in 1976, which occurred the same year um, that Mao passed away. Um, the final death toll is two uh, two hundred seventy thousand. Yeah. Most people think that's quite low, considering Tangshan was a flattened city of one point eight million. There's an author named James Palmer in Beijing right now who's, who's working on a book on Tangshan. But these are always very, very sensitive things. And the, one of the things very impressed, I think, is in the last two years is how the government has responded. And Tanya, on that score, how has the government responded? Uh, let's, let's look at Wintuan and let's look at, at, at Yushu and uh, Jiegu. I think they have started getting aid there pretty quickly. It's an extraordinarily difficult place to get to, actually. I mean, it's a sort of 900-kilometer drive down from the uh, provincial capital of Shichu. How did you get there? What was the uh, what it's was your It's a order? very long, winding road. It goes up to a very high altitude, which obviously actually presents problems for rescuers as well. I mean, bear in mind, I think 200 rescuers had to be shipped out again because they got so sick. Wow. When, so it's not an easy place to get to. There are a lot of supplies coming in, but it was taking a long time. It's not particularly easy to get through the town because the roads are very limited. Um, and so I think relief efforts were initially quite slow, but there were a lot of quite practical Mitigating circumstances, reasons right. for that. And sort of talking to people down there, they said as well, uh, some people were, you know, have still been quite reluctant to leave their homes, either because they've got an emotional attachment, there are still bodies in the wreckage, uh, perhaps because they've got possessions in the wreckage, perhaps because it's near a monastery that they feel particularly attached to. Um, and so they're not sort of going to the camps necessarily to get help. Some of the people down there did feel that aid had been fairly slow in coming, but I think there are quite practical reasons for that. And a lot of people actually seem to think that the government was doing a reasonably good job. What was striking is that people in the centre seemed to think that the performance had been better than people further out. And of course, that's because the tents weren't getting to people on the outskirts. And there were allegations that they were focusing on the town buildings and the concrete structures rather than on the mud brick in the perimeter. Yes, I mean, that was uh, something that a few people said. Again, you can read that in a number of ways. Actually, because it's a predominantly Tibetan town, I mean, it's something like 97% Tibetan population, I don't think you can read that um, as an ethnic division. And certainly, you know, one of the, the, the most dramatic incidents I saw, there was this sort of huge pile of rubble right in the centre of the town, which was one of the first places that rescuers went. Well, we know that four monks were living in there, uh, and certainly several 
Tibetan people, and that was one of the sort of the first focuses. Targets of there. The, the Dalai Lama, I don't know if all of you read this, uh, he had expressed interest in his website in actually visiting the areas of Qinghai, which were devastated by the quake. He mentions that he and the Panchen were both actually born in Qinghai province. He actually went out of his way to praise the Chinese government's response, singling out Wenjiabao, in fact. Is this an opportunity for Beijing to seek an opening? I see zero chance of that. Yeah, zero chance. Okay. I think uh, you know there, you can't go from Dalai Lama and the evil click to uh, Dalai Lama praises Wen Jiabao and uh, we welcome him. Um, what I think is interesting is not in terms of uh, the Beijing's relations with the Dalai Lama, but Beijing's relations with Tibetans. Um, that it's been very keen to show that it is every bit as concerned about this earthquake as it was about Sertran, which of course was on a much larger scale. Uh, if you look at the speed with which Wen Jiabao went down there, the fact he went to a monastery as well as two sites in the town, although Reuters say that that visit wasn't reported by Chinese state media. I'm really not too sure about that. But, you know, he, um, I was there when he turned up at the monastery. He praised the monks for the work they'd been doing. He made a point of saying, we won't just rebuild your homes, we'll rebuild the monastery as well. Hu Jintao was down there very quickly with his arm around a sort of young Tibetan girl who'd been injured. They're very keen to show, you know, they're not ignoring this. They're not indifferent to the situation. 2008 and the Wintran quake in Sichuan, of course, received quite a bit of very positive coverage. There was a lot of feel good around it. What's happening? Is there, is there, uh, can we compare the two quakes and coverage of the two? I think they've given a, a, the media, both foreign, uh, obviously domestic, <laughs> have given a general uh, perception, uh, given us a general perception of an A for effort on the part of the Chinese government with, of course, underlying tensions. Uh, I think it's been relatively fair with some natural doses of cynicism about the uh, propaganda side of the ledger. And, and Tanya, as a reporter there, were, you, were your movements restricted in any way? Were you allowed pretty much to talk to who you wanted to and get where you needed to get? Uh, we were very free to move around. I have to say, normally when there's a disaster or a major event, people are so busy worrying about that that they generally perhaps don't keep as much of an eye on the media mm -hmm. as they might otherwise do. But of course, if you think of Sichuan, we were very free to move around that's, that's, that's and talk to true. people. And yet, in the aftermath, when it came to trying to talk to the parents of children who died in schools that had been shoddily constructed, I mean, that became a very sensitive subject. And at that point, it became much more difficult for reporters to go back to those areas and to talk to parents. Parents were put under a lot of pressure not to speak to us, which, of course, is, I mean, one of the important things. The fact that we can move around doesn't necessarily mean that people can speak freely to us. 2,046 people dead, I think, was the last count that I saw. Today has been declared, today is Wednesday, the day we're recording here, uh, National Day of Mourning, and all the Chinese internet sites have gone to black and white. There's no entertainment content. Uh, all the, the entertainment uh, facilities in Beijing and all around China have been shut down uh, out of deference. And as we noted, this was a, this is a very rare event, taking it very seriously indeed. I'm optimistic that uh, this will, I think, play out well in, in the long run. I hope that we've seen some learning in terms of how these things are going to be covered and, and the freedoms that they extend to people in, in asking some uncomfortable questions even about circumstances surrounding the quake. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. I want to really thank uh, Jeremiah, Gadi, and Tanya, and thanks again to Dave Lancashire at Pop-Up Chinese for hosting this podcast. For the Cynical Podcast, until next week, this is Kaiser Guo. Mm -hmm.